0: This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to America's Voice for Energy. This
1: week, we're talking about ethanol, and we're talking about specifically the ethanol mandate, which is part of the renewable fuel standard that says that refiners must blend a certain amount of ethanol into the fuel supply. And on November 30th, or by November 30th, the Obama administration must release their blending standards for the next year, which makes this a timely topic to talk about this week. And I'm excited to have with me for our first segment today someone who can really address this whole issue because his organization has just put out a report on the federal ethanol mandate. I'm glad to have with us today Matt Dempsey, and he is a spokesperson for the Center for Regulatory Solutions, which is a project of the Small Business and Entrepreneurship Council, S-B-E-C. It is an advocacy, research, education, and networking organization dedicated to protecting small businesses and promoting entrepreneurship. For 23 years, SBE Council has worked to educate elected officials, policymakers, business leaders, and the public about policies that enable business startup and growth. Now, if you've heard me talk about my role, sounds like we have a real similar uh, task ahead of us because I work to educate the public and policymakers on the role of energy uh, with the idea that if people understand how important energy is, they will make different decisions when they vote. So, Matt, I'm delighted to have you with us today on America's Voice for Energy.
2: Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: So I think this is the first time you've been with us, and I hope with, this, with the background that you've got, I hope it won't be the last. But after i read your, your little uh, introductory comments there, to me the logical question is, is, what on earth does ethanol have to do with small business, startup, and growth?
2: Well, that's a great question, and it's a matter of small businesses across the country are the ones having to pay the price for a federal mandate coming out of Washington that forces the amount of corn ethanol to be blended into our nation's fuel supply, which in the way of, of higher prices at, at the gas stations, it's higher food prices, higher prices for grain, um, and so it goes on and on. But the, the point here being is that the, the federal ethanol mandate, which was supposed to be about lowering our dependence on foreign oil and addressing climate change, has turned out to be uh, completely wrong
1: yeah it, it certainly has, and I've written on it many uh, many times, but it, it is interesting how it does really impact uh, all aspects of our economy, and people don't think much about it.
2: No, and what we've tried to do over the last few weeks is take a look and go state by state and and see what the impact is, whether you're in the New England region or if you're in the Corn Belt, whether Ohio, or Indiana, and, and today we have a new report out in California showing that no matter where you are, the, the, the impact of the corn ethanol mandate has been dramatic, and it has been bad, and it's been costly. And, and the, what we're trying to do here is make sure that Washington knows that all across the country that there is opposition, whether it's business groups, whether it's environmental groups, whether it's uh, poultry groups or the marine manufacturers, it goes on and on, Uh, It's widespread across the political spectrum, and it continues to grow.
1: Yes, and your new report that you have out specifically addresses California. And, you know, anyone that pays attention to energy issues knows that California is really kind of off the rail on on their energy policies. Did you find in the reports that you have done that address, as you mentioned, several different states or regions, because I believe you said one of them is New England, that the policies in California are worse than the rest of the country?
2: Well, you know, when it comes to California, they've been ahead of the curve in terms of understanding just how bad corn ethanol is. They have something called a low carbon fuel standard, which, you know, c- certainly raises the cost of gas at the pump. But yes. interestingly enough, the, the car- corn ethanol doesn't fit into the low carbon fuel standard because of their because of corn ethanol's impact on climate change and the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that it produces. So, you know, here you have something Kind of ironic in terms of California is saying corn ethanol is bad, while the rest of the country thinks that we're doing something to address climate change.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. So there, so corn ethanol. I want to make sure I understand that correctly. Corn ethanol um, in California—they're elim- are they eliminating it because they realize it 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 adds to the carbon?
2: So that, as part of their low carbon fuel standard, there's been a long ranging debate between. Uh, corn ethanol producers in the state of California, whether corn ethanol should qualify as um, something that would fit into their law in terms of a low-carbon uh, mandate to be able to fit into the, into the, the law. And, and, you know, to this date, it's not been the case. Um, they need to use other forms of um, fuel to, to match their mandate. And so, of course, that, and in short, it makes the price of gasoline go up because you can't use corn ethanol. But um, so if you look at, in terms of California, whether and, and most interesting, the, the person that people are going to know most commonly is Senator Feinstein, who has spoken out mm-hmm. repeatedly as a sponsor of legislation in Washington opposing the corn ethanol mandate.
1: Yeah, she's come out with some interesting uh, statements lately that I, I think uh, irritate. She might be on the the White House's blacklist.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, when, when you're talking about the end of the month and EPA having this decision to make about how much corn ethanol should go into our fuel supply, yeah. there's, there's a second issue that's also happening at the very same time, and that is President Obama and John Kerry traveling to Paris yeah. to go to the, the U.N. climate conference. And, you know, part of their agenda they've talked about for a while is, you know, using corn ethanol as a way to address climate change. Mm-hmm. And sci- science, scientists after scientists has come out and said, you know, corn ethanol is not only bad for, for greenhouse gases, but it's bad for our water, it's bad for our air quality. And so the fact that President Obama and his administration haven't followed the science and found that this is bad for our environment kind of shows that this is a, this is a political agenda as opposed to trying to actually address our nation's environmental needs.
1: Yeah, so considering the uh, UN Climate Conference in Paris at the end of the month, do you have an educated guess of which direction they will go on uh, this, the, the standard that they have to come out with by the end of the year? Will they, will they go higher so that they can have that as a you know, bona fides to wave in Paris, or do you think they'll go lower? Where do, do you have any idea?
2: Well, it's interesting because it, they're going to try to have it both ways. On the one hand, in terms of the lead-up to the U.N. climate conference, the administration hasn't made mention of biofuels in terms of addressing climate change, so leaving that out in terms of their U.N. negotiations. But when it, but when it comes time to, to make this decision, this announcement at the EPA, uh, it's going to be more corn ethanol in our gas supply, but it's not going to be to the amount that Congress had originally put forward, frankly, because um, it doesn't, it doesn't work. The policy has been a disaster from the beginning. Uh, as you know, talking about cellulosic yeah. ethanol and second-generation biofuels, they haven't come online quickly enough. So corn ethanol has been kind of this bridge to nowhere, and we're dependent upon it, and the corn ethanol folks are, of course, benefiting from this. And so the administration, if you remember, Senator Obama, or President Obama was on the Environment and Public Works Committee back in 2005 when this bill was originally moved through Congress. And he supported it then. He was from Illinois. He was from a corn state, and so you can understand why he's been such a proponent of it. Meanwhile, his his, um, in the Democratic primary in 2007 was Senator Clinton from New York, and when she was on the same committee at the same time in 2005, she voted against the mandate. And so President Obama uses for politics, which is which is basically what why this standard still exists today is, is because of. Uh, Iowa and and presidents and candidates running for office going through Iowa first. So I think that's why it was such a significant development to have someone like Ben Carson, who said that they were supportive of the mandate, reverse course and and decide that this is bad policy for the country.
1: Yeah, that's why I use that in my column, and I hope that it gives um, Congress uh, a little bit of backbone. I mean, I know that various staffers read my stuff and so forth, and so I, I hope that pointing that out gives them some backbone uh, on um, perhaps repealing, revising the RFS. I know it's got a a, a big group of opponents uh, against it. We just have a few minutes left. Matt, can you address uh, from your background on this topic the renewable fuel standard and where you see uh, it going in Congress? Because as I mentioned in my column, I know that there is bipartisan support for uh, revision at the very least?
2: I think this is one of those times where, where on the policy side there's be, there is overwhelming consensus that corn ethanol is the wrong approach, and politics just takes a little little bit of time to follow suit. And I think what we'll see is with, with the President um, wrapping up his term over the next year, there's going to be increasing amount of voices in Congress recognizing that corn ethanol is not the right answer. And I I can't see any of the next, anyone that would come into office after Obama to be as nearly as supportive of the corn ethanol standard as he has been. If you you look and see what environmental groups have to say about the standard, whether it's the Sierra Club or Friends of the Earth or the Environmental Working Group or the National Resource Defense Council, they're all opposed to this, and so for if, if environmental groups are this way, and if, if it's whether it's a Democrat or Republican coming into office, and if it's not about reducing foreign oil anymore, because obviously the United States is enjoying an oil and gas boom, and if yes. it's not about addressing environmental needs, then then from a policy standpoint, what what what's left? And I think it's just a matter of having Congress coming along, seeing the bipartisan effort, seeing the science, seeing the, the increased amount of attention on this. And I would say within the next year, uh, the corn ethanol mandate—you'll um, see—you'll see movement in Congress on this.
1: Yeah, it's, it's uh, my friend uh, Tim Snyder, who's going to be on the show later with me, says ethanol has no political home.
2: Well, I think that's right. You know, and what's interesting is, you know, this is one of those situations where you've got Al Gore opposes it, <laughs> you've got <laughs> Bill—you've got Bill McKibben opposing it, but you know who does support it? Uh, Tom Steyer. And, and, you know, this is a guy from California who has ma- put environmental issues on the top of his agenda. But, you know, he, he, get, he, he got in support of corn ethanol when he decided, you know, I'm going to go into Iowa to support a Democratic candidate. And that Democratic candidate needed t- to pander for political purposes to get votes. And so Tom Steyer, who had been a longtime critic of corn ethanol, um, all of a sudden switched to support it. And that, those are the last remaining people to support something like this.
1: Well, that should tell us a lot right there, doesn't it? We're about out of of time here, so tell our listeners how they can get the reports that you all have put together at the Center for Regulatory Solutions.
2: Well, thank you. So there's a number of reports from across the country, California, Ohio, Indiana, and New England, all available at centerforregulatorysolutions.org.
1: Great, and I've got the one for California in front of me, and I encourage our listeners to check that out. Matt Dempsey, I appreciate you taking your time out of your schedule to join us today on America's Voice for Energy.
3: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
4: The United States Justice Foundation since 1979 has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me.
0: This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back
1: to America's Voice for Energy. Today I'm excited to have with us Brendan Williams, who is the Executive Vice President for the American um, Fuel and Petrochemicals Manufacturing. No, I've got that wrong, Brand- Brendan. Tell me the correct. Yeah, you're Fuel- right. Amer- I the American, American Fuel and it right.
5: Petrochemical Manufacturers, the FPM.
1: Uh, Great, thank you. Well, by my messing it up, it gave you an opportunity to uh, put that out there again. And as I was telling you before we came online here, I was just watching a YouTube video that the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers Association put out um, on E85 and ethanol. And as I was watching it, I thought it did a very good job. Uh, explaining kind of the predicament that Congress has put us in on this ethanol situation. Uh, Can we
5: start by addressing that? Sure. The ethanol mandate is uh, an unfortunate case study and unintended, unintended consequences. Back starting in 2005, Congress actually mandated a certain amount of biofuel to be blended into our nation's fuel supply. And in 2005, the volumes were relatively small uh, in comparison with the overall fuel consumed in the country. But in 2007, they dramatically expanded the mandate. So they went from requiring 8 billion gallons of biofuel to be blended into fuel supply to 36 billion gallons by 2022. And they have a schedule in the law that actually mandates specific, specific volumes each year. And so the problem we're in now is that when the law was passed, the energy landscape looked a lot different. The dialogue in our nation's energy policy was one of energy scarcity. Folks were talking about being dependent, overly dependent on foreign sources of oil. Uh, Their energy independence was a policy issue. That was obviously before the domestic oil and gas boom and before we found ourselves as we do today, where, you know, America is, you know, grown to the, be the largest crude oil producer. Uh, we're, we're leading the world in terms of natural gas. Uh, the world is uh, certainly right now oversupplied in crude oil. And so certainly it's a much different energy security picture than it was in 2007. The other part of the landscape that's changed is in 2007, Congress felt that gasoline demand was going to be increasing exponentially. At, to, for example, by this year, EIA, the U.S. Department of Energy's Energy Energy Information Administration said that, predicted that American consumers would use about 160 billion gallons of gasoline this year. Uh, However, we hit the recession in 2008, we've had multiple rounds of CAFE standards, and now we're actually, gasoline demand is essentially flat for the foreseeable future. Uh, Americans are on pace to consume 139 billion gallons of gasoline this year, which is pr- probably on par with where we were in 2007, actually a billion gallons less. Uh, so why is that a problem? It's a problem because as I mentioned before, the law requires specific volumes of ethanol to be blended into fuel supply. And because gasoline consumption' is a lot lower than it was back then, than it was predicted to be at this time, we're facing a situation where the law requires more biofuel than existing vehicles, engines, and infrastructure can handle, uh, and that's what we call. You breaching that saturation point is what we call breaching the blend wall, and it's a big concern for refiners, and it's a big concern for consumers.
1: Oh, you've done a great job of explaining that and what we what that blend wall situation is. And um, so that's that's where the idea of E85 comes in, is that this if vehicles can operate on a fuel of 85% ethanol, that would kind of sop up some of that excess ethanol that the law requires to be used. Is that
5: correct? Right. The ethanol industry will try and tell you that, you know, these volumes can be met if, if there, you know, through more consumption of E85, which is a fuel that's 85% ethanol, 15% gasoline, or more consumption of what they call E15, and that's a fuel that contains 15% ethanol. There's a couple of different problems with that. Recognize this is a consumption mandate. It really depends on what consumers want to buy. Uh, and it operates like an, an – but, but the refiners are the ones responsible for complying with the program. So we have to hope, in essence – That a certain amount of ethanol can be used in the fuel supply because it operates kind of like an upside-down cap-and-trade program. You remember the debate over cap-and-trade where the policy was talking about setting an emissions limit and businesses have to get credits to show emissions are under that limit. Well, with the ethanol mandate, the mandate sets a floor of what ethanol needs to be blended into the fuel supply, and refiners who can't blend ethanol at the refinery, it's blended at a terminal, and we often don't own the terminal. So we have to buy credits to show it's being used in the fuel supply. Uh, And so if there aren't enough credits, you know, we face some tough choices. Uh, We can reduce production uh, to a point that reduces our obligation, you know, unnaturally uh, or export more than we naturally are, neither of which are scenarios that our guys want to face. And that's um, really disconcerting for consumers uh, because of the potential fuel supply challenges. Now, with that background, why is E85 not an option to solve this problem. There's about 240 million vehicles on the road. Maybe around 11 million of those are what we call flex fuel vehicles that are capable of actually running on E85. But what the Department of Energy has found is that people with these vehicles aren't actually filling up on E85. They're filling up on gasoline most of the time. And, you know, the the reason is because if you look at it historically, E85 – when you adjust it for energy content, because it gets about 30% and less energy than a gallon of gasoline with maybe 10% ethanol on it, which is the most common blend, if you look at E85 uh, on an energy content basis, it's always more costly, more expensive than a gallon of gasoline. Now, AAA actually publishes those numbers in their fuel gauge report. So it costs consumers more. They have to go to the pump to fill up more often because you have lower energy content in E85. And because of that, the people who do have flex-fuel vehicles aren't using the fuel. And again, there's a very small amount of vehicles that can actually handle it to begin with. So that's one of our concerns with uh, how EPA sets the mandate. Uh, they, they actually have to set the mandate each year based on their view of the statute compared to what they think the fuel supply can handle. And they, they, they certainly uh, have look to overshoot, which exacerbates the problem, for E85 specifically they ass- last year there were about 76 million gallons of E85 consumed. EPA is relying on uh, an assumption next year that between 100 and 600 million gallons of E85 will be consumed, and that's one of their assumptions that they feel it, you know is a justification for setting a standard that definitely flirts with breaching the blend wall.
1: So I, I didn't understand uh, that the E85 situation, and you explained it well. I hadn't understood that before. But I've, I understood that most
5: of the new vehicles coming out were flex fuel. Is that not accurate? No, that's not accurate. Uh, actually, uh, autos are probably going to be moving away from flex fuel vehicles. Under the old CAFE program, they got CAFE credits for making flex uh, fuel vehicles. Under the new CAFE program, that credit essentially goes away. They can still get the credit if they can show that the people who own the flex fuel vehicles are filling up with T85, which is obviously pretty close to impossible. Uh, Now, in relation to E15, so that's 15 percent ethanol. EPA a couple of years ago said that vehicles 2001 and newer can use, can run on fuels containing 15 percent ethanol. Uh, However, the autos disagreed with that assessment. The autos basically have said that most of their vehicles, 2001 and newer, cannot run on E15. They're not warranted to run on E15. Uh, The auto manufacturer sent Congressman Sensenbrenner a series of letters where they detailed the fact that most of their vehicles are not warranted for E15. Some of the newer vehicles that are being produced in in the last couple of years, uh, the warranties will allow for E15. Uh, but, again, it takes close to 10 years for the vehicle fleet to turn over. Uh, so you're going to still have this huge these huge number of legacy vehicles that just aren't capable of running on E15. And then there's obviously a concern over consumer misfueling. Uh, they, you know, people are going to have to consult their manual to see if they use this fuel. If they fill up and, and, and accidentally – if they pull up to the pump and accidentally fill up on it and it's not compatible, you know, do they risk potential engine damage? Uh, and then there's a whole host of small engines none of right. which are compatible to run on anything higher than 10% ethanol Whether it's boats lawn mowers snow blowers snowmobiles you name it
1: you know i'd like to ask why why that is that those are not can they not make those to be compatible with ethanol
5: well I, I, they could probably produce them to be compatible with ethanol but the the problem is First of all, consumers aren't demanding it, um, mm-hmm. and secondly, up till now, you know the, the fuel supply contained about 10% ethanol, or it's it's gradually moved up to 10% ethanol, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, it's, it's a completely different engine design if you're going to go above that. So all the engines that have been produced now, you have I think it's over 200 million pieces of legacy equipment. Uh, people aren't going to you know automatically run to the store right. and buy a new lawnmower. So and you know, in some of those smaller engines, ethanol, the the higher concentration of ethanol actually burns hotter. So, for example, if you have a chainsaw, you know, and you have higher concentrations of ethanol in it, it could potentially engage the clutch in neutral. So these these are serious issues of small engines. Yes, small engine manufacturers could probably design engines, but again, there isn't really a consumer, you know, there are no consumers clamoring uh, for higher concentrations of ethanol in the fuel supply for vehicles, let alone small engines. So it's, uh, it's unlikely that we'll see small engine manufacturers uh, move in that direction. With boats, it's a different scenario. Um, you know, the, the, the higher concentration of ethanol in the fuel with, when mixed with water actually could adversely impact engines in a marine environment. So they are unlikely to... To ever go uh, that way. To, ...to start making engines for higher concentrations of ethanol. Uh, and and the you know boating manufacturers and consumers and 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 and, 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 and 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 consumers have been among the more vocal opponents of escalating ethanol mandates.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, interesting. I, I, when I wrote my column this week on this topic, I've been amazed at the number of comments I've gotten from readers who tell horrible tales about their lawn equipment and what they have to do and that Toro manufactures an aftermarket product to, to correct that and that there's ways to re- remove ethanol. I mean, the discussion that has ensued online on some of the places where my column is posted is, is amazing.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's a big concern, and, you know, and and ethanol as a product generally. We certainly feel there's a place in the market for ethanol as a product. We just have to move away from these overly aggressive ethanol mandates that are pushing too much into the fuel supply too soon uh, and in quantities that consumers aren't demanding, which lead to all these problems, problems for our members, uh, problems for consumers in terms of vehicle and engine compatibility, and, you know, the price of the pump. Uh, certainly our inability to get enough credits to meet this thing could have adverse impacts for the fuel supply.
1: Yeah, I wish we had more time. I'd like to talk more about those credits, but maybe we can do that again. We're basically out of time, Brendan. We've been talking about uh, ethanol with Brendan Williams, Executive Vice President of the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers. One last quick question for you. Do you think the renewable fuel standard is going to be changed anytime soon?
5: Well, I think the tide is certainly turning against ethanol mandates. You've seen that uh, just the other week. 185 members of Congress signed a letter to EPA telling them to make sure they don't finalize a standard that busts the blend wall. Uh, That's a significant number. Uh, You guys have watched Congress trying to find 185 of them that agree on anything. He seems to be stretched these days. So it certainly shows the tide is turning. Uh, we, you know, we're going to have to wait and see what EPA does with its impending rule at the end of this month. And, you know, to a certain extent, that will shape the landscape. But we're certainly confident that the momentum's there for Congress to take up the reins and repeal or, or at the very least significantly reform this flood mandate.
1: Great. Thank you for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy.
3: This is Dr. George from Peachtree Street and Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you will be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed, and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts.
0: This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
3: Welcome back to America's
1: Voice for Energy. Today we're talking about ethanol, the renewable fuel standard, and the deadline that the EPA is facing in a matter of days to release the uh, volume standards for the amount of ethanol to be blended into fuel uh, in, the, in the coming year. And now we're going to talk with my friend, Tim Snyder, who is an energy economist, and he's kind of my go-to guy on ethanol because Tim was involved in in the uh, – Tim, you'll have to give me the right word here – not the building, but the planning for some of the original ethanol plants.
6: Yeah, it was development. I I actually um, uh, helped uh, develop uh, develop a significant significant amount of – uh, ethanol opportunities in Texas, um, nothing in Oklahoma, though we did spend a lot of time in Oklahoma, Nebraska, Kansas, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, just all over the country for, the, for what it's worth. Specifically in Texas, um, I was uh, actually employee number one for a company called White Energy that uh, owns three ethanol plants, two 100 uh, plus million gallon plants and a 40 million gallon plant. So um, I helped put those things together. I cited them. I uh, did all the development work, helped them write their economics. So have been very involved in this for quite some time.
1: Now I'm hoping you can answer a question. My last guest was Brendan Williams, who's the executive vice president for the American Fuels and Petrochemical Manufacturers, and he brought up something that I was not familiar with, but I'm sure you can answer. And we ran out of time to discuss it with him. And he said that ethanol is not blended into the fuel at the refiner, but that it's blended in at the terminal. Yes. Can you clarify that?
6: Well, actually, it's it's let's get let's get a little bit more. Uh, specific, it's not even blended at the, ter- at the terminal, it's blended in the truck. Um, we take a tank, we have a tank, separate tank of ethanol, separate tank of, of uh, RBOB, our, our, our basic blend stock for gasoline, and we blend them together into the truck. Uh, short-term deal, bottom line is um, ethanol, first of all, you can't put ethanol in a pipeline. Uh, because ethanol is ethyl alcohol, and alcohol acts as a scrubber, so it would be a terrible nasty mess, uh, plus it attracts water and everything else that are considered byproducts from condensation, everything else from the fuels. It's just a really bad mess to put in the pipeline. So refineries have nothing to do with ethanol. Um, Refineries produce the basic blend stock that goes into the pipeline, and we pull our fuel off the pipeline and we blend Um, into the truck, which goes immediately to a gas station, puts it in the tank in the ground.
1: Now, I've heard talk of, and in my column I mentioned, a subsidy that the Obama administration was putting forth for blender pumps. Is that where that comes in?
6: Yes, ma'am, that's exactly what that is. A blender pump is a pump that can have uh, variable types of, uh, ethanol blends it's a specific type of pump it can also it can carry an e85 uh, at that pump uh, it can have an e20 or an e30 if there's a if there's an approval for those particular types of blends of gasoline but a blender pump is necessary if you're going to have higher than just your basic 10 percent blend of ethanol uh, and at a, at a gas station now,
1: would that mean then that, that at that gas station underground you have one tank that's gasoline and one tank that's ethanol, and the blender pump pulls a certain ratio from each pump and blends it on the spot? Yes, ma'am. Oh, yeah. okay. So that requires some retooling at the gas stations.
6: Uh, yes, and and it's that's why there's infrastructure required in, in a lot of this. That's been the biggest challenge with ethanol, really, is the infrastructure for for transport- uh, transporting it uh, because the only way that we can move large amounts of ethanol out of 100, like like for instance here in, at Hertford, Texas or Plainview, Texas, we've got 100 million gallon ethanol plants. And it you you know you, the only way you can move large amounts of ethanol, and of course that's annual production by the way, the only way mm-hmm. you can move these large amounts of ethanol is by putting them in a rail car and putting them on the rail. So the rail cars are and the truck tanks can handle the composition
1: of ethanol, but the pipelines cannot.
6: That's exactly right. They, just because you can't blend, the problem is, 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 is uh, there's a secondary problem to this too, and 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 that is ethanol can separate uh, uh, if it was already blended with the gasoline. If we put it into a, a rail car with gasoline, a blended a blended product already, it could separate. Uh, so it's you know you gotta. There's just a lot of pieces of this puzzle that. That you know just basically don't fit
1: so that's why, back in May, you remember when I wrote my column to Ben Carson with his statement that we should take the so called subsidies the oil industry receives and use those instead to install blender pumps. He had been in Iowa and had been talking with with people there, and of course they were providing with him a pro-ethanol um, message. And he, he listened to that and came out with the statement that I chastised him for. But that's that's where they're coming from.
6: Yes, ma'am. That's exactly right.
1: Interesting. I, I just didn't have time to, mention, to, to discuss that with Brendan Williams in the previous segment, but uh, you've explained that well. Now, another thing that he brought up going to economics here is he pointed out that even if you have a flex fuel vehicle, which means it can handle up to E85. Right. That when you it, when you go to one of the gas stations that actually has E85, and you don't see those much, but I know in Santa Fe, uh, I've seen gas stations that you know have a big sign out that they have E85. Um, that that gasoline is a more expensive. The E85 is more expensive than the regular gasoline, and b because it has a lower Uh, fuel, what's the right word there, Tim?
6: Well, it, you're talking BTUs here, and and that's a different animal. First of all, E85, and I need to correct you on this. E85 is almost always less expensive than your conventional blended gasoline, uh, and that's because you know there's not as much. You know, you, you can you can look at blending economics. That's the reason uh, that ethanol has been such a an economic driver and something that's actually helped blending economics is it's been very positive. Uh, from a financial standpoint, for these blenders to be able to use a lower octane fuel and get the lower octane fuel and blend it with ethanol, which is higher octane. In other words, the BTUs are much higher. Um, You know, gasoline, you know, by itself right now, the average of gasoline that you buy at the pump is 85 to 87 percent or 87 octane. Um, You know, ethanol by itself is 114. So um, when you blend a higher amount of ethanol, into your gasoline, um, couple two things happen. First of all, it does breathe differently. It does actually, in in deference to what I know you had Mr. Dempsey on just earlier your first mm-hmm. morning. Um, it actually reduces the amount of chlorofluorocarbons that are reduced, that uh, admitted um, into the air as a as an effluent from uh, you know your gas tank, your your, your tailpipe. Uh, that's number one. And number two, it lowers your fuel efficiency because you're actually burning a hotter fuel. So E85 fuel actually gives you lower fuel efficiency. So in just basic terms, uh, you are uh, having to fill up more. How's that? Yeah. Well, and
1: that's what Brendan said. I thought he said that it was more expensive than gasoline, but,
6: um, you know. In most cases, it's less expensive. There's about four in Lubbock, Texas, where I live and work for a petroleum company, um, there are I think there's four stations here in Lubbock that actually sell an E85 uh, product.
1: And it's less expensive.
6: You know, back when ethanol was significantly less expensive than gasoline, um, you know, bottom line was, was, uh, you know, you could have some pretty serious uh, price differences between an E85 and your standard 85 or 87 octane gasoline, but since ethanol right now is more expensive than gasoline, um, it's still just slightly less expensive. I think you get about a nickel uh, below the price of the, the basic blended gasolines that we see standard, a uh, little bit advanced blend, and then of course the higher octane blend. But but when you look at that, um, it's really in in my mind, from as an economist, I look at that doesn't it doesn't offset the decrease in fuel efficiency that you'll see from from increasing the amount of ethanol, and that's why I really don't see. First of all, I know we've got the November deadline coming up, November 30th deadline coming up for Congress or the EPA to uh, give us the blend wall, the the uh, RFA stand standards for not for 2016. I kind of believe in the back of my mind, Maria, that we're not going to see that happen next week. I think we'll probably it'll probably get postponed because they're fighting other battles right now, and uh, there is. You think? no, consensus and no political home. Yes, I've quoted you on
1: that frequently, that there's no political home for ethanol. In fact, I was on a radio show in Idaho this morning and, and used that very very specific phrase. Sure. Yeah, and it's, it seems like everybody has kind of turned on ethanol at this point.
6: Well, you know, here's, here's the problem that we have with ethanol. Um, right now there's so much misinformation out uh, in the public, I, you know, I listened to Matt. and a matter of fact, I've spoken with Matt a couple times uh, before when he was at Imhoff's uh, office uh, in Washington, D.C. And and you know, good people, good understanding. But but unfortunately, we need to we need to get back to the facts. That's that's something that's very important. Uh, he mentioned three issues: higher fuel prices because of ethanol, higher food prices because of ethanol, higher grain prices. Because ethanol, um, if I may, if I can have just a second, I'd like to address each each one of those things. Sure, sure. The first issue is the higher fuel prices. Bottom line is the reason that the fuel prices rallied as hard as they did uh, back in the two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, up to two thousand twelve was because the price of crude oil was going up. That's the reason why fuel went up, not because of the addition of ethanol. Um, we were, you know, we were growing ethanol. Uh, at that time, and, um, you know, the infrastructure uh, for, for transporting ethanol has not changed since that time. So the bottom line is, is when crude oil went up, the fuel prices go up. Remember that gasoline, uh, 75, 70% of the price of gasoline comes from the value of crude oil. The second issue, we talked about food prices. Um, you know, unfortunately, ethanol got charged with with being responsible for raising food prices across the country, because they were saying it was, it was trying to take, uh, you know, corn that was, just, you know, uh, corn acres that were that should be focused on feeding people uh, to using them for uh, making ethanol. The problem was the reason the corn price went up to over eight dollars a uh, uh, a bushel was because we had a drought. Is
7: Hobie Bowlin?
1: Hobie, hang on just a sec. We're going to be with you in a minute. All right.
6: Thanks. Go ahead, Jim.
7: Okay, sorry about that.
6: That's uh, all right. We had a uh, had an issue uh, in the you know in the middle of that. We had a drought in the I states: Iowa, Indiana, Illinois. Um, and then across, you know, back throughout the Midwest. that actually was terrible in Texas. But we lost so much corn acreage and grain sorghum acreage and all those, you know, the agricultural acreage. That's what caused the price of food to go up because of the drought that we had that was so, you know, horrendous from 2000. Really the end of 2010 it started and went through, you know, almost the middle of 2012. And then the last issue, of course, um, you know, uh, when we look at, at the food prices and the grain prices and the fuel prices, those were all external factors that have caused this to, you know, caused each individual component to change. Fuel prices are now down significantly, though we have probably some of the highest production of ethanol that we've seen in quite some time. It has nothing to do with supply and demand for ethanol. It has to do with supply and demand of crude oil and the oversupply of crude oil right now uh, food prices just didn't come down um, you know the, uh, the the food prices when they rallied and I, I don't know if I've ever if I can ever remember an incidence once when food prices um, went up because of transportation costs and then transportation decreases and the food prices ever came down so you know those have been big issues and the grain price grain price is half what it was so it's hard to blame ethanol for that and that and in, in, in fact Uh, As an economist, I've studied this in depth, and, uh, you know, we know uh, even the Food and Agricultural Policy Institute uh, that's uh, um, Missouri, University of Missouri, um, Kansas State University, Iowa State, and Texas A&M, FAPRI, uh, has studied this uh, it, ad nauseum, to be really honest with you has
1: Tim, Tim we're, we're out of time Hobie, you, you're you're online Hobie is the president of the Virginia Poultry Federation can you both hang on for a minute and we'll be right back
2: sure
1: sure great We'll be right back on America's voice for energy
4: Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation which since 1979 has been watching out and when necessary Support USJF as they support you.
8: This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. Thank you, God bless patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security.
1: Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio.
0: This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. As we were ending our last segment with energy economist Tim Snyder, we had Hobie Bowen, president of the Virginia Poultry Federation, join us. And uh, I asked Tim to stay over a little bit because I thought perhaps there might be a difference of opinion in ethanol and, and its role in grain prices, and uh, we're going to let Tim and Hobie have a little chat together about that for a few minutes before Tim says goodbye, and we focus totally on Hobie's, president, Hobie's viewpoint as president of the Virginia Poultry Federation. So, Tim, do you want to lead off?
6: Well, sure, and, and I'll say that, you know, I would imagine you're very busy this time of year. <laughs> Uh, Hobby, I can imagine. You know, with us coming up on Thanksgiving, that's a big issue. And I know Absolutely. that grain prices are very important to the poultry industry. Um, you know, I, I, I want you to understand that from our standpoint, um, you know, yeah, we do see those. We do see an effect uh, from time to time. You know, on you know different demand issues. The more demand, obviously, the higher the price is going to go in a situation like this. But, but you know, when you have a uh, an economic disruptor like ethanol was in the grain industry back in you know 1999 and 2000, um, we didn't have that much of an uh, economic uh, imbalance. Now it's 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 greater. But at the same time, the price of grains not quite
7: what it was due to the drought. What what are your thoughts? Well, I. You know, I think you're you're right. Certainly, uh, uh, grain prices and corn has mitigated uh, since uh, the uh, really after they doubled the renewable fuel standard in December of 2007, we saw. Corn pushing eight dollars a bushel the following spring, and then uh, with the drought that uh, really came in 2011-2012 timeframe, again we saw uh, our corn prices uh, doubling uh, and up in that eight dollar range, and so we've had good. Uh, crops in the last couple of years uh, that uh, have have mitigated that some, but we 're really only you know one uh, weather disaster away from uh, the volatility that we see uh, in this uh, RFS environment
1: and hoping would I be correct in uh, my assumption you two are the experts here, but would I be correct in my assumption that when the drought situation uh, when when the industry is fa- faced with that drought situation, the fact that a required quantity of ethanol uh, was maybe siphoning off, maybe that's not the right word, but the corn supply uh, exacerbated the problem?
7: Well, uh, if you have a federal mandate to use uh, a certain amount of corn, uh, that creates an elasticity of demand where in the poultry sector uh, it causes contraction. Uh, During that time frame, we had a lot of severe economic harm uh, because uh, with corn uh, and feed comprising 70% of our costs of of production, uh, when you have a a sudden uh, doubling of uh, cost of of that, then uh, you're going to but really, you're going to see people going out of business, and, and you're going to, it's going to create problems for farmers, for everybody within the poultry industry uh, that relies on uh, this industry for their livelihood.
1: Yeah, and as Tim, Tim has taught me, I didn't understand until really last week that the corn used in ethanol is not the same corn that goes into the human food supply except through feedstock.
7: Correct.
6: Yeah. Right. It, just to to make a point too with, with Hubby real quick. You know, it, it almost seems like you know we both have a have a bit of an issue with the, with the corn growers because the corn growers are who are pushing the the E eighty five mandates and the other issues that we're dealing with. Corn has benefited from this, but but you know everybody else along the side of, along the along the food chain, if you will, uh, has suffered quite quite dramatically from this. And I, I almost believe that the fight should. Be, you know I, I hate to pit agriculture against agriculture but you know what it's done is we've we've fed one commodity and starved the other one
7: yeah and i i don't really want to do that i mean corn producers are obviously critical uh, an important part of our agricultural uh, community and certainly critical for the poultry industry but you know unfortunately this this federal policy that began with uh, a subsidy in addition to the mandates has created a, kind of an artificial economic uh, condition in that sector that has not been been healthy uh, I mean it may be artificially healthy but it's just not based on free markets and so right. it's really exactly good to see it being sustainable in the long term
6: that's a that's a very good quote I you know uh, if, if if I ha- if you had the opportunity, Marita, um, I would use that again because it really is, you know, if free markets, um, you know, markets pick winners, markets pick losers. Government shouldn't be picking winners and losers.
1: Yeah, on that we can all agree. Tim, I know you've got another call you need to get on to, so I appreciate you staying this little bit of extra time with us.
6: Sure, you bet. You guys both have a good day. Thank you I'll so see. much.
1: And Hobie, I appreciate you being willing there to kind of merge our conversations because I think I, I, I was especially pleased that you're willing to come on the show today because I, I think there is a misunderstanding out there about how this all impacts um, the food supply overall. And obviously, as you've made clear, uh, the, this is a real concern for you. You represent the poultry industry, but I, I think it under it impacts. Uh, the the hog industry the cattle industry as well
7: it it does I mean anybody any of the ag sectors that are uh, feeding animals are going to be concerned and impacted by this in in Virginia we've uh, poultry is the largest sector of, of agriculture um, and really I had no idea it is. Uh, we have a large uh, turkey industry as well as a large uh, broiler chicken industry, and uh, economic study indicated that our industry uh, employs as many as 15,000 people directly, an additional 36,000 jobs uh, uh, impacted by the poultry industry uh, Thirteen billion dollar direct economic impact in the Commonwealth. Uh, We rank uh, ninth in chickens and sixth in turkeys. So we're not the biggest in the nation by any means, but it's a, a major part of our economy in Virginia.
1: I would guess that that would be a surprise to most of our listeners to think. I think we think of it as I know Arkansas and Illinois, Indiana, those kind of areas. I would think of more for me in that area anyway.
7: Well, of course, Arkansas is number two in the country and and is much larger as far as broiler chickens in particular than Virginia. But, again, Virginia is still a significant uh, producer of poultry in the nation. And, and, uh, again, it supports a lot of family farmers in the Commonwealth of Virginia as well as a lot of jobs.
1: Yeah so how, let, let then back to the topic at hand, how does ethanol um, you know you all as, a, as an industry are opposed to the renewable fuel standard, correct?
7: We are. We just think it was misguided and it's had a lot of unintended negative, consequences uh, for a lot of different uh, sectors from people that are concerned about food prices and availability uh, to its effect on uh, engines to the environment uh, and to, you know, our Specific concern, which is its uh, effect on the supply of uh, feedstock for production of uh, a major input in the in the cost of producing poultry.
1: So, has the ethanol mandate, the Renewable Fuel Standard, has it then increased um, the amount of land used for field corn, as as it's called?
7: Well, I, I know that it, it certainly has. I don't have specific data on that. Sure, but, that's fine. Uh, you know, and the corn producers have you know, done a, a terrific job of, of output, of uh, producing uh, record crops in, in recent years, other than we, when we've had a drought. Uh, mm-hmm. But when you look at all the demands from... Uh, the feed sector, the food sector, uh, the ethanol sector. I mean, in in recent years, in, in I think in one of the most recent years, uh, ethanol was actually a larger user than uh, animal uh, feed, uh, and so. Really. Uh, yeah. So, whereas the uh, the corn producers have uh, really strove to uh, produce record crops. Uh, you know, there's really not a, r- a lot of room for error there. And as we saw uh, so devastatingly in the 2012 time frame when we had a, a drought and a short corn crop, uh, you know, we we really suffered. I think there were some, you know, since this policy has been put in place in the 2007 time frame, uh, there have been at least a dozen poultry companies that have uh, ceased their operations, filed for bank- bankruptcy, and or forced to be acquired by another company. It's just been hugely disruptive in our industry.
3: And
1: you feel that the ethanol mandate is is at least in part responsible for
7: that? Absolutely. I mean, again... In December of 2007, Congress doubled the RFS standard for corn ethanol, mandating an escalated uh, usage in ethanol up to 15 billion gallons by the year 2015. That's di- suddenly diverting um, around 40 percent of our corn crop to our uh, from our uh, feed uses and other uses to our our gas tanks, and um, that's just I mean just. What I mentioned before, in the spring of 2008, corn was around $8 a bushel, whereas historically it had been in the $3 to $4 range. Uh, And with 70% of our production costs being in feed, Uh, you just cannot pass that on uh, immediately, and so you are suddenly operating in a sea of red ink. Uh, Eventually, you do contract, and the result of that is increasing food prices uh, because eventually it does have to get passed on to consumers. And I think in 2012, I saw some data where, the average family had a, their food bills up $2,000, uh, and so uh, we uh, it's just harmful from the standpoint of uh, people in animal agriculture as well as consumers, um, and really it's time for Congress to uh, reform this this program. We're supportive of legislation to just eliminate the RFS for corn ethanol. It's just we're pitting our food so- supply against uh, our, our fuel supply, and it, it's just not really uh, borne out the promises that uh, were made That in terms of uh, fuel independence, energy independence, uh, environmental benefits, et cetera. It's just not yet been what it's billed to be.
1: Yeah, all of our guests today that I've had on have, ta- have you know favored the repeal, if not re- or revision, if not full repeal of the renewable fuel standard. So, Hobie, I appreciate you taking your time today out of this busy season for you. As Tim mentioned, I hadn't even thought about that for the poultry industry. The week leading into Thanksgiving was probably a really busy time, but I appreciate you taking your time to join us uh, today here on America's Voice for Energy and kind of share the perspective of the poultry industry and its impact and ethanol's impact.
7: Great. Well, I appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. Just be sure to join in next week for another interesting discussion on the topic of energy and the economy and the political impact on all of it here on America's Voice for Energy on americaswebradio.com.